You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 27, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Josh Clark, the founder of Big Medium, a design agency specializing in connected devices, mobile experiences, and responsive web design. He speaks around the world about what's next for digital interfaces, and today we'll be speaking about the cult of engagement, how digital technology captures our attention, and about the possibilities for designing user interfaces and user experiences that are more conducive to focused attention and mindfulness. We're extremely pleased to welcome Josh Clark to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In today's interview with Josh Clark, one of the topics we touch on is how whenever content or products online appear to be free, in fact, they are being paid for, but just not by you as the end user or customer. They're typically being paid for by advertisers who are paying in order to obtain information about you as the end user. And I know in my own experience, I have that urge or tendency to be attracted to and gravitate towards free products and also to gravitate towards the lowest cost version of a product, even if there is a charge for it. I've definitely gone onto Amazon, searched for something like a book, and then found all the sellers sorted by price and picked the lowest cost seller, even if it's only less expensive by a few cents than the next one. Uh, what I'd ask in this week's tip is to bring some mindfulness to our online habits, uh, to pay attention to any time when we feel ourselves being pulled towards choosing something because it is, quote, free, or choosing one product or seller over another because they're the lowest price to us. And to stop and pause and ask, why am I making this decision? Why am I choosing a free product? Who is really paying for this? Who's subsidizing the cost? And by choosing the free product, do I want to promote uh, that payer, that true buyer? Do I want to give them what they're paying for? If I am ch- about to pick the lowest cost seller, let's say on Amazon, uh, what I'd suggest is stop, pause, ask yourself, is this the seller I want to support with my dollars? Maybe I have some other goals other than just paying lowest price. Maybe I want to support, in that case, an independent bookseller over a large chain. Uh, I might have lots of other goals, but I'll only notice what they are and be able to act on them if I stop and pause, notice my urge or inclination to get the lowest price, examine it, and then make an informed, conscious decision based on my own values, instead of just acting automatically and reactively based on that urge to get something for free or as inexpensively as possible. And I suggest you do the same. Hope you enjoy that tip. And now on to my interview with user interface and user experience designer, Josh Clark. 
Hi, Josh, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to have you. You're the first real user interface, user experience person we've had on the podcast. And if you don't mind, uh, not to point the finger at you, but maybe put you in the hot seat for some of the, some of the sins of, of your industry, which is it's very well known, uh, for producing great user experience. But I think in recent years also for really trying to grab users' attention and keep it in a way that, you know, it's not always necessarily what what users want and and for the purposes of listeners of this podcast may not always be most conducive to to the user being mindful and focused and and continuing along uh the line that they wanted to go in when they sat down to use a piece of technology maybe you could give us a little bit of context about that history where we stand now and maybe where you see some positive developments going in the field with regard to that that uh, let's say tension between the desire of technology developers to capture users' attention and, and the desire of users to to go where they want to go. Yeah, it's such a great observation that that there is that tension, and it's it's something that you know I think as as users of technology, we do often sort of feel ourselves being almost sort of helplessly drawn into. Uh, interfaces and into digital experiences. And suddenly, you know, it's three hours later, we're still in Instagram. <laughs> uh, and it, I think that we have a tendency to blame ourselves or to think it's like, oh, I, I have a, a problem. I'm addicted to my phone. And, you know, I think while there probably are some things that we can do individually to change our behaviors, the fact is that the industry is is driving toward that. Everything is designed to be used for a screen. Everything is designed to keep you moving and and drawing you further into an interface, sometimes with with good intentions that have gone awry and sometimes with more cynical intentions. Um, and when I say good intentions, I, I mean that you know, the industry term for this is engagement and designing for engagement. And in a sense, that sounds good, right? Like It's like, oh, I want to have an engaging experience. If I'm opting into this, I would like it to engage me, right? <laughs> uh, the problem is, is that when that becomes uh, sort of a dependency for the business, where I will make more money the more time that you spend, the more in particular ads that you look at. And so now I'm sort of beginning to design this in a, in a cynical way that more than just... Um, uh, taking attention that is offered, it begins to steal attention, to distract mm -hmm. attention. And so now when I hear engagement as a designer, that that's, that's the goal. It's like, oh, we want to have a more engaging experience. What I'm really hearing is we want to steal people's attention. Um, and I think that we see that in, in all kinds of ways that, uh, uh, those incentives have started to create a bunch of different evils in our digital experiences. Many of the things that we're seeing in the news about Facebook at the moment um, of how they have um, manipulated or, or have had some companies be able to manipulate the algorithm to, um, you know, spread and engage, if you will, in, in fake news. Uh, so I think there's a bunch of different downsides to this. Um, and I think that this this problem of being uh, sort of in the throes of the cult of engagement is something that isn't only uh, infecting companies, but also is starting to get into the way that we all as individuals think about publishing content. 
you know, if it doesn't get enough likes, is it worth sharing? Um, where we start to, to, to watch the number of likes on our photos or on our posts or on our tweets and attaching the value of that content to the number of likes that we get. And I think that that's probably not a great, a great way to value our creation. I really like that term cult of engagement. I don't think I've heard it before. And it really gets at, I think, what you're talking about as a, uh, an imbalance. Uh, and it's not, of course, that uh, companies seeking engagement is inherently a bad thing. And as you said, users go to Facebook and every piece of technology, every app, every website, um, voluntarily. No one's forcing them to go there. They go there because they want something out of it. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a company uh, trying to keep users engaged. That may even be entirely in line with with what the user wants. But when I hear cult of engagement, you know, it, it connotes something that's gone out of whack, right? Gone yeah. too far, perhaps, in one direction. Yeah. And I think you see that particularly then with the really large companies, the, the Facebooks and the Googles who are mining data from us and, and watching us at times when we aren't even aware of it. Uh, information that we believe is under our control often is not uh, to, to gather these sort of profiles so that then they can feed us information that will often make us angry or draw uh, a reaction because that is something that is itself engaging. So what it tends to be is that now these algorithms are tuned for rather than calm for outrage and for emotional response, because that's the kind of thing that keeps you going. It's another way in which things may be imbalanced. Nothing wrong with having, uh, really strong emotional responses to content, but when the technology is calibrated to make that be the dominant or even only kind of experience, right? It skews us in a, in a certain direction. And I, I want to go back to what you said about, uh, you may, you may or may not have used the word transparency, but you know, you said that, uh, there may be a, an extent to which people as users aren't fully aware of what uh, Facebook or Google or other other online companies are doing uh, with respect to gathering data, and this certainly came up in the the Facebook uh, congressional testimony. This issue of how much are people aware of how Facebook works, and I wonder if you could speak to if there is a user interface or user experience element to that. You know, are, are there either ways in which I'll just use keep using Facebook as an example is now making users aware of how their data is being gathered or ways in which you think it could do that better through user interface or user experience design? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some things that can be done, which is and I'm, I'm not sure that we yet have the models for it, to be honest, of, of the, the best way to do this. But I think that simply knowing when your data is being recorded is itself useful. So an example of this is 
uh, Facebook, when you start typing a post and say, I don't know, you've had a really bad day at work. So you're, you're, you know, you're angry at your boss and your boss is an idiot. I can't believe that, that, that he said this thing or that my colleague did that or whatever, just sort of starting railing on something. But then you think better of it and delete it before you post mm-hmm. it. Facebook has captured that data and has kept it and it's part of the, your profile, even though you didn't post it, even though you didn't click submit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of something that feels shady about that, you know, that feels like you're being eavesdropped on. And I would say that either companies just shouldn't do that, or they should let you know that, you know, you're sort of under constant surveillance, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is is frankly the case. I mean, part of this is, I think, the responsibility of companies to let us know that we are being watched at all times, either through information that we're sharing or that others are sharing about us, um, or that, you know, is sort of being taken in a sense when we're unaware, like the example that I gave. Uh, either company should be upfront about that, or we just need to have a much better kind of literacy and understanding that, frankly, uh, we are approaching kind of a total surveillance. Mm-hmm. And that may be inevitable. In fact, I tend to think that at this point, total surveillance is inevitable, which sounds all kinds of spooky. <laughs> the thing is, I suppose, that that I think about as a designer is, uh, you know, that may be inevitable, but what's not inevitable is what we decide to do with it. How can we make the people who are doing the surveilling accountable and mm-hmm. responsible and transparent in some degree? Um, it's got to be more than just saying we have 5,000 privacy settings for you to review and change. That's a false mm-hmm. sense of control mm-hmm. since that's really unmanageable by any of us. Uh, instead, it's, you know, how do we make things private by default? which is something that the European Union has just set out to do. This month, they're rolling out uh, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which sets all kinds of defaults to privacy in the favor of the consumer, which is something that's unlikely to happen here in the United States, those kinds of regulations. In fact, things seem to be going in the other direction, which means all the more that people like me, individual designers or individual companies, need to be on the hook to do the right thing. Yeah, it's really great. When I, I really appreciate your point about when the uh, if if this is what you said, the making it too complicated for the user, or even giving them too many options, perhaps for configuring their privacy settings, may not really be giving them a lot of actual control. I mean, I've gone in periodically to my Google account, to YouTube, to other accounts, and. You know, I have to say, I'm a pretty sophisticated user, and sometimes it can be really hard even to find the settings, uh, much less to figure out how to use them and what the effect of changing them really is going to be. That's such a great point there that you make is, you know, what effect am I having? You know, I think that the deal that we've established is that we can give up some of our privacy in exchange for value. Like there's there's a certain a certain amount that we're willing to to give. At what point are we breaking something by turning mm-hmm, off mm-hmm. some sharing? I, you know, it's funny. I I feel like I'm constantly playing these kinds of games with the machines. I, I use Spotify to listen to mm-hmm. music, and they have the Discover playlist, which is remarkably good at sort of being giving new music that is of the kind that I normally listen to. And every once in a while, it is. Um, 
it's a, it's not a very flattering mirror. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's plays, it plays back music that makes me feel just incredibly uncool. <laughs> uh, you know, sort of validating everything that uh, our teenage daughter says about my, my musical taste. And so I actually will start listening to music that I don't actually want to listen to, but I know is cooler because then it's sort of like, this is actually improving somehow this mirror back that I'm looking at. And so it's, <laughs> It's sort of not having clarity on what the machines do or think, but 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 kind of caring what they think is sort of a funny situation that we find ourselves in. <laughs> so it's more that you're concerned about what the what the computer will think of you than than you than what some other person will. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, or at least what it what it's telling me about myself. And so there's sort of like this surface opportunity to improve myself, I suppose, or at least my appearance. <laughs> Just to go down this path of of what people know uh, about how technology is listening to them or the people behind it. You know, I actually don't often know uh when I change a privacy setting uh somewhere. Does that mean that a person will no longer see it? Does that mean the software will no longer see it? I know that at companies like Facebook, they have changed over time their own internal practices about whether content's going to be screened by an algorithm versus by a team of people. Um, as the end user, how do I even know uh, which of my data is seen by a piece of software rather than by a set of people sitting in a room. Uh, it actually does matter to me, but the fact is I actually don't even know. Yeah, no, and, and, and it's a moving target, like you say. And, and in part, I think the reason that it would be screened by people is because the machines aren't yet sophisticated enough to make sense of it in the way that human beings can. And so it will continue to be a moving target. But isn't it interesting that it matters to us whether there's a person versus a machine <laughs> that takes note of it? I, you know, I work with some healthcare companies and they've definitely noticed as they've unveiled some sort of automated, what are called chat bots, you know, like little text bots that you can talk to. We've all encountered these in, in some customer service experiences, these very sort of simple automated robots that can answer questions. Um, but they've found that in the healthcare thing is that people will be much more revealing of sort of personal health conditions mm -hmm. to these robots than they would to people. There's this sense of anonymity. Uh, and, and even just using, sometimes communicating through their mobile phone, through apps or through text, it changes the nature of what they will communicate even when it is a person on the other side there's sort of something about the computer interface and particularly the the phone such a very personal device that changes the way that we interact with people or choose to share about ourselves interesting i mean i'm i'm glad you pointed out because you know from a mindfulness perspective part of mindfulness is just being aware of your own experience and i think certainly just hearing it's helpful for me uh, to know that and then to see the next time I'm engaged in a chat, pay attention to my own willingness to share more or less and s try to see if I can notice where that's coming from rather than just yeah. engaging in it automatically and however I happen to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. It's right. What What is it that makes us feel safe or secure or confident? And the interesting thing is, is that it, it's possible that particularly with some of these big services that we think of as anonymous, they are actually quite the opposite and sort of gathering these extremely detailed 
personal profiles of us, um, sometimes with good intent. And I don't want to paint this all as, as evil or nefarious. These are big companies with all kinds of different people who work inside them, all kinds of agendas. There's no single Facebook or no single Google. And some of these folks are, are very idealistic about the intention that they have of trying to create really personalized experiences that surfaces content that we, that we care about. Um, it's just that it's also tied to cases where they are selling mm-hmm. our data to the highest bidder, which sometimes is actually very low amounts of money, as it turns out. You know, some of this for me raises questions. I, I think I'd call them ethical questions for the designers. You know, uh, on the one hand, I can see a uh, a real benefit to designing user interfaces that do lead people to feel more comfortable interacting with them, like you've just described. I don't see anything necessarily nefarious about that. Um, in fact, right, it been, was a critique for a long time of computers that they were so unhuman in how you interacted with them. You know, people called for more human-like uh user interfaces and, and user experience. In a sense, you could say the users were were demanding them or calling for them. But you could imagine someone with a nefarious purpose, right, designing something to lead lead the user to feel very comfortable and at ease for the purpose of extracting more information than someone would otherwise want to provide. Right. When those are people, we, we call them Con men. And again, you know, but also there are also very warm people who we have a lot of trust in who are, are doing it with all the right reasons. And so I think it's like you say, it's, it's important just to be to give a little thought to what is the likely agenda behind this interaction and behind this data gathering. And, you know, as you say, for designers, I think it does raise some ethical questions that um, one of the things that I've been doing um, in the talks that I give and the articles that I write is, is trying to really encourage designers to be at least intentional about the values that they're embedding into these systems and into the decisions that they make. Because no matter what we do, our, our values are reflected in these interfaces, which after all, are all about guiding behavior in some way or another. So what kinds of behavior are we trying to uh, trying to encourage? Maybe you could talk about that and just give some some basic examples for people who may not be familiar with it. Because I could see a lot of people, uh, particularly if they haven't been in the design world, hearing you say that interfaces are meant to guide behavior, thinking, oh, wait a second, aren't user interfaces just there to kind of passively gather information that I provide to it? You know, that concept that they inherently guide behavior or that they might embody the biases of the designers is is not necessarily something that's obvious to everybody. So maybe you could give some examples of how that's actually played out in the tech world. Sure. You know, in a very simplest way, you know, any interface is a tool to do a certain job. And, you know, in the best case, it's something that the company that makes it and the the person using it, the customer, get the same exchange. And it's the same sort of to start here in any sort of offline experience. You know, a store is designed to accomplish certain goals and to provide a path through the store that will, you know, result in a purchase. And in the best case, this is something that works great for both sides, that I've found something that I want, the store gets the money in exchange, and so 
Great. And so the, the, it's the same case with interface design is that the business has a certain set of goals for creating the design and, and path and flow of, 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 you know, of your path through the site or through the application. Um, but it often, you know, is again with these business goals, they are trying to accomplish something. Um, and so as you start to design an interface, you're sort of thinking, well, what do we want to accomplish here? What do we want to make really easy and guide and suggest people to do? Um, and again, this isn't something that's typically in a evil. It's often something that reason why you're in the first place. Hey, there are biases, sometimes explicit um, on the part of uh, of the uh, of the business, um, you know, Amazon wants to sell you stuff, and that's pretty explicit. Where things get a little bit dicey, though, is particularly in ad-driven interfaces, because there, you know, there's this classic phrase that if it's free, you're not the the customer, you're the product, uh, and and you know that that really is the case. That in, in there, it's sort of the business interests are not perfectly aligned with what you're there as a customer. And that's a scenario. You're there, for example, to read articles, learn more about your friends. The business is there for you to sort of stay there as much as possible and see as many ads as possible. And so in that sense, the, the goals of the business are not aligned with the goal of the customer. And so the you'll start to see things like we were talking about earlier, where you're designing for emotional response and things get a little bit more cynical. Uh, you know, and so I think one of the big challenges for uh, designers, as well as for the people who who use websites and apps, is to start thinking about well, what is the business model that I really want to engage with? Um, advertising, because it's dependent on attention and harvesting as much attention as possible, is inherently toxic, really, to good experiences from a, a customer perspective, from a user perspective. Uh, and I, I think it, it doesn't have to be that way. It, you know, it, it, it didn't really have to be the case that content would be free and ad supported on the web, but it did turn that way in a way that now we sort of think of it as being the way it, it had to have been. Um, I think that one of our challenges now is to think about, well, what are alternatives to this? What, how else might great content be paid for other than through advertising since it's something that does tend to have a toxic effect on, on content and on editorial, on user experience and on the business incentives that are out of line with what the, the customers or readers incentives are. Are you seeing any new up and coming examples of different kinds of, this is more about business models than necessarily user interface or user experience per se. But uh, if you want to talk about any of those, any any new experiments that are showing some promise as alternatives to purely ad-driven business models there. Well, I think, you know, we've sort of got the familiar examples of what are called paywalls for newspapers where, you know, we're familiar with this. You might get five or ten free reads a month, but then beyond that, you have to subscribe. So going back to a familiar subscription model um, and starting to see some things like that medium, which is the website that has a lot of sort of essays, almost sort of like a, 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 a blog site for, for any who cares to write long form content. They've started introducing a $5 membership fee uh, that you can subscribe to. And, you know, I'm not quite sure how that will all turn out. There's a, it's, it's a little bit, um, 
tricky because now we're all accustomed to getting stuff for free. And so I think part of it is going back to this literacy issue of what is our privacy and experience and attention worth to us. And when we start thinking of it that way, we may be willing to start to pay more um, for perhaps some better services. I think the risk, though, is that we wind up having two internets, one that is respectful and respects attention and time um, and has good experiences, but is only for people who can pay for them and that will have an entire class of people who have terrible experiences. Um, and so, you know, and whether that would be a short term or a long term thing is is an interesting and hard question. You know, it makes me think of some uh, technologies out there I've seen trying to insert themselves in between the two. I mean, for example, I use Pocket. Used to be called Read It Later. If I see an article I like, I save it into Pocket. And the main benefit is I can read it later. <laughs> but from a user interface perspective, it has a certain way of viewing articles, which is, I think they call it article view, which when I read that article from whatever website it came from, it just shows the text. Uh, and so I actually have a paid subscription to Pocket. I think there must be a free version also. But from a user interface perspective, they're providing an alternative user interface to that offered by the native or original content provider like the New York Times or whatever it happens to be. And uh, they're, they're offering a different business model too. Um, I don't know how scalable that is or how appealing it is to many people, but I've certainly found it appealing to have someone provide a different, more, for me, more focused, less distracting, less ad-driven user interface for the same content. It's a great point. I mean, and, you know, related, we see lots of people embracing ad blockers just because the things have become so abusive. Of course, as, you know, as content providers, often people who create content that we really like and care about create these increasingly sort of desperate and abusive interfaces. They, they chase us into services like this. And of course, the New York Times, you're, you're paying pocket not the New York Times. Right. Uh, and so they're losing those ad views. So it, it's the kind of thing of, of these sort of, as companies become more and more desperate with their advertising, it begins to shoot them in the foot. That, that, that as they abuse our attention, we choose to go elsewhere uh, or, or view their content in different ways. And, and it's, it's hard. And I should say, I do a lot of work for media companies. Um, and uh, I care deeply about great content and about making sure that, you know, I, I feel a sort of a civic responsibility to helping them figure this out. It's a hard problem because there's just such a culture of, of advertising. Well, I wonder if you have any words of encouragement from your own experience of where things are going to other user interface designers out there, particularly those who find themselves butting heads uh, with the business people, as you said, any, any encouragement for them or advice? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think ultimately the business wants to just make money from what they do. You know, I mean, I think that that's what we all do want to do in our in our work is to is to make a fair amount from from what we create or what we make in our day to day. And I think that just sort of understanding that need uh, or, you know, in that sort of fundamental 
reason for for businesses to exist is important to accept but then also to be to to embrace that point of view not as an adversary but as a problem to solve mm-hmm. that you know the the thing is like great all right we want to make profits but we also want to do it in a respectful way what are our opportunities how can we persuade people to pay for this directly rather than by sacrificing their privacy um, or at, at the very least, you know, how can we make it part of this business's values to be transparent about the, the values that we offer? Um, it's not so much about picking fights as being a productive ally and solving the core business problem, but doing it with a real eye to saying, but it's also important to do this in a way that respects the people who use the service. Well, really, really enjoyed talking with you, Josh. This has been great, quite a different topic than what we usually talk about. I think it's going to be of a lot of interest to our listeners. So thanks so much for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. What a pleasure to be here, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Josh Clark, an expert in user interface and user experience design and a thought leader in designing user experiences that engage the user in transparent and respectful ways. Josh is the founder of Big Medium, and his clients include Samsung, Time Incorporated, TechCrunch, Entertainment Weekly, eBay, and many others. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Dr. Delaney Rustin, the maker of the documentary film Screenagers, Growing Up in the Digital Age, who will talk about the film and the digital lives of today's youth.